0: happy guy Then he eat a molded pumpkin pie then he thought that he just couldn't die so then he laughed so all
1: Hello, my little elves and reindeer, and welcome to the Saturnalia celebration of the Run Run Live podcast. We are at episode 4-355 today, and I hope you are all doing well. Are you getting to spend some time with your families? Maybe too much time with your families? Maybe take a moment to be grateful, be in the moment? It's all good. Today, we are going to do a little heart rate training refresher with the coach, and The reason why is because I have been getting a lot of questions around heart rate training. So I thought we'd take a couple beats (laughs) to review some of that. Maybe it will set you up for your spring training cycle, your next training cycle coming out of the winter solstice. And in section one, I'm going to talk about Raynaud's disease or syndrome, which is common in the cold weather months and how it's a different thing than just having cold hands. And in section two, I'm going to wax philosophic about setting your own work-life balance rules. And as you may have noticed from the sexy timbre of my voice, I am, or have been, sick. Last week I had a sore throat, rapidly progressed into a sinus infection, and I've been on antibiotics for a couple days. I lost a week of training in the process, And managed to eat six pounds worth of sugar cookies as well. <laughs> I'm getting fairly disgusted with myself. I'm ready to get back on the training horse for this is the dramatic pause. Wait, here, maybe drumroll. The Boston Marathon. And yes, I am lucky enough to have received a waiver entry for the 2017 Boston Marathon. It will be my 19th Boston Marathon. I'm qualified for 2018, but not this year. I age up in November of next year. So unless they change the rules again, I'm good for next year. It's been a long ride when I think back on it. Qualifying for that first Boston in 1997 damn near killed me. I only needed a 315 at the time because I was already aging up in 1998. Do the math. But I trained for and ran a 3.09 just because that was the goal I set. And I set my PR at Boston that spring of 1998 at the ripe old age of 35, running a 3.06 on a nice, cool, drizzly day. And I remember that day. I remember passing Rick and Dick Hoyt somewhere in the middle miles, and they weren't as famous as they are now, as famous as they would become at the time. But you could really see people back then, especially as a qualified runner. There were just a lot less, like a tenth less the number of runners on the course. The crowds were the same, but the course had a lot fewer runners. There was a lot of open pavement and very few runners. And I clearly remember that day. GPS watches didn't exist yet, but I knew I was running way over my head when I caught the Hoyts. I, I I totally... Positive splitted that race too. Ran like an idiot. The last two miles were a nightmare, but I was in good enough shape to tough it out and set a PR. I probably lost two to three minutes in those last couple miles. And you can see that thousand mile stare in my eyes in a race photograph from Boylston Street. Good photo. My form is beautiful. I've got nice big hair too. Where'd all that hair go? With a red bandana as a sweatband. And I've got those red high-cut shorts huh? and a long sleeve tech shirt with a nice nipple blood stain. You remember those things, those moments, they change your life. And in the same way, the Hoyts, the Hoyts have changed many thousands of lives just by being out there. And I hear the stories and they all start with some version of, little Johnny saw Rick and Dick and turned to me and said, we can do that, dad. And bam, a life was changed. A dream was enabled. The art of the possible. The frame is broken. And I can be part of that by supporting these guys. So expect me to ask you for a contribution for Team Hoyt for my 2017 Boston Marathon so I can help these guys continue to change the world. You can do that. That's a good thing. And on with the show. It is when we learn to leave our comfort zone that we find ourselves communing with our inner strength. Raynaud's disease in runners. Do you have cold hands? I have cold hands. That doesn't necessarily mean that you and I have anything wrong with us. However, there is a disease or syndrome that you should be aware of called... Raynaud's. I have friends who are runners who have this syndrome. So what happens when you have Raynaud's? Well, it is usually triggered by cold weather, but can also be triggered by other environmental stresses, diet, sleep, stress, or some combination of those. And it's more common in cold weather climates. Whatever the trigger is, whatever that triggering stress is, Raynaud's causes the blood vessels in extremities, like fingers and toes, to spasm and restrict blood flow to the smaller capillaries. And they use the wonderful medical terminology of vasospasm to describe it. And when this happens, your fingers or toes will turn white, almost waxy. They'll turn cold and maybe even numb. And if you don't warm them up, they may even start turning blue. To understand the severity of what happens, go look at some of the photographs online of affected hands during these episodes. It It's quite clearly delineated where the blood vessels are shutting down. I've included one picture, but click through to Wikipedia and look. It's quite shocking. Once the attack starts, you need to get the affected fingers or toes warmed up. After 15 minutes or so of warming, the blood vessels will relax and blood flow will return to the extremities. The pinker color will return to the fingers and they may tingle or ache a bit as they warm up. So talking to my friend who has Raynaud's, he said the temperature really doesn't have to be that cold to trigger an attack. He said that the best defense against Renault's is a good thick pair of winter gloves and maybe some hand warmers when it's really cold. And he said that once they start spasming, all you can do is get somewhere warm and wait it out. And I wanted to talk about Renault's disease with you today because I think people misunderstand what it is. And I hear people talking about having cold hands and tossing around Renault's symptoms. You know, Renault's symptoms like it's synonymous with having cold hands. And it's not. Renaults is a specific condition whereby the blood vessels spasm and cut off normal blood flow to the fingers and toes. As endurance athletes, we may have low heart rates and low fat content in our bodies, and this will contribute to your hands and feet being colder than other normal peoples, but that is not Renault's. That is just an attribute of the way you've configured your body through endurance training. I know my cold hands can be cold for an entire winter run of multiple hours. And when I get back, they're still cold. And sometimes they get achy from the cold, but they don't turn white and waxy. They're still getting blood. It's just not warm enough to bring them up to body temperature. And I can fix this simply by wearing thicker gloves. Renault's can also be late onset, meaning that you can not have any episodes until later in your life, and then start getting it. And that's typically more, from my research, that's typically more in the case of people who have let their cardio systems degrade later in life. The degraded cardio systems from lack of exercise or smoking, those sort of things, can trigger late-onset Renauds. And that's typically not a scenario you and I have to worry about. And it seems that women are more likely to have Renault's than men. And Renault's, like we said, is more, obviously more common in cold weather geographies. Interestingly, the medical treatment for a bad case of Renault's is vasodilator drugs. Can anyone in the class tell me a good example of a vasodilator drug? Well, if you're my age and watch sports on TV, you probably have seen plenty of ads for vasodilator drugs. That's right. Viagra and all its pals are vasodilators. I guess now you've got those hands warmed up, you can take it to the next level. Yeah. Renault's can be triggered by certain medications and other physical conditions, and in the worst severe cases of Renault's, you can permanently lose blood flow to the affected areas. This gives you all the ickiness of necrotic tissue and ulcers and all those sort of things that come with tissue that doesn't get blood. But I'm sure now that you know the facts, you won't get that far. In summary, cold hands are common among endurance athletes. Renault's syndrome is a specific medical condition where the blood vessels spasm and cut off flow to your extremities. If your fingers or toes are turning white, waxy, and numb, you may be having a Renault's episode and you should go, Get that checked out. There's no cure per se, but it can be easily prevented by wearing warmer gloves when you're out and about. So now you know. Stay healthy.
2: And now for today's featured interview. Jeff? Yeah. So I haven't worked out since uh, I don't know Tuesday. I've just been eating sugar cookies.
3: Do you hear that? Do you hear that kid talking in the background? Yeah,
2: that's Teresa. Say hi, Teresa. Hi. Oh,
3: hi, Teresa. Hi, Teresa. Hi, how's it going, Coach? Good, how are you? I'm good. Good.
2: Teresa's uh, um, on our pa- panel of experts today. Oh, so you're ill still. I am, yeah. But it's a head cold, so I've been getting plenty of sleep and fluids and stuff. I'm just staying off it because I figure the best thing mm-hmm. I can do is just stay off it and let it get better, right?
3: It's just better to get 100%, especially with the weather the way it is right now, And, and rather than go out and aggravate it. I just think it's just better to get 100% so it doesn't move anywhere else. Get it out of your head and move on. Because if it gets in your chest, then you're looking at two weeks before you can do anything.
2: Right. I had pneumonia back in May or June. That took me out for two months. Because you get the sick first, and then you got to deal with the uh, antibiotics wiping you out. So, yeah, yeah, I'm just laying low. I can afford to lose a little fitness.
3: Yeah, it's good to lose a little fitness.
2: Yeah, Yeah, so we were talking about heart rate training because I got a lot of people asking me about heart rate training. So give me 200 words or less on what heart rate training is and why we care.
3: (laughs) Well, 200 words or less on what heart rate training is. Heart rate training is teaching your heart how to beat more efficiently while it supplies blood and oxygen to the working muscles. In other words, you're training your cardiovascular system to be more efficient, and you're teaching your heart how to beat slower to do that while you're working harder.
2: So getting more for the same investment. Exactly. We talk about zones, and you, sometimes mm-hmm. you'll do a 10-zone system with the triathletes or a six-zone system with the runner. Uh, I think we do a five-zone system, Teresa and I, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. How would you describe the, what zones are and what the perceived effort is? Buddy's here, too. Buddy's helping.
3: Oh, hey, Buddy. Zone one is very, very relaxed, about as relaxed as you can run, Hardly feels like any effort whatsoever when you're doing a run. It's a, it's a recovery zone, and that's what we use it for, just recovery. You're still getting some aerobic benefit from it, and you're getting recovery. It's kind of like getting a massage after after a workout. That's kind of what zone one does for you. It helps us get the fluid circulating in the muscles. It helps to get all the gunk out of there and move you on to another. So very, very effortless zone. Zone two is your conversational zone where you can run along and and carry on a normal conversation with um, not many breaks in your speech. It doesn't feel like you're using any more exertion as you're running and talking. Some people like to say it's the singing zone where you can sing while you're running. I think if you can sing while you're running in zone two, your zones might be a little off because you're running a little bit too easy. At the end of a zone two run, you should still feel like you've had a workout, but a workout at a conversational pace. Zone three is uh, perceived exertion-wise. The best way to judge as your speech starts to become a little broken. In other words, there's little breaks in between the words that you're saying as you're running along. You're still aerobic. You're still developing mitochondria and capillaries at a little bit lesser level. It's probably going to feel more like your marathon pace for most runners. Again, broken speech pattern, a little bit more exertion than zone two, a little bit more turnover in the legs. And so there's it's a little bit more working off. Zone four is when you start to begin to get in the lactate threshold area. So you're going to start feeling the burn in the legs speech patterns are very, very broken. You can't say a lot of words without taking a break to recover from the conversation. So it's very, very hard effort. Zone five is when you hate me and your mother and your neighbors and everyone else along. And on a five zone pattern, most people can only sustain zone five for 30 to 40 seconds tops.
2: How do you determine what your heart rate zones are? Because that's beats per minute, right? So there's certain places where you split from zone 1 to zone 2 to zone 3, etc., and that's in beats per minute. How do you determine that?
3: I like to use a lactate threshold test, and coming off that lactate threshold test, and I use percentages of lactate threshold. So in other words, a lactate threshold test will look like a 10-minute warm-up, and then you're going to hit the LAP button on your heart rate monitor, And you're going to run, depending on who you are effort wise, you're going to run from 20 to 30 minutes at the hardest effort you can sustain consistently for that period of time. So, in other words, you don't want to be going up and down and up and down in your effort levels. You want to sustain that effort consistently. At the end of that, you hit your lap button, and then we take the average of that 20 or 30 minutes and we use a percentage of that number to calculate your training zones.
2: So the other way to do it is with a max heart rate, right?
3: Well, that's another way to do it, but not a, re- a way that I subscribe to. You know, max heart rate is so different in everyone that to base formulas and calculations using the max heart rate, the numbers really aren't as accurate as using your lactate threshold.
2: So isn't that how um, Maffetone calculates? I've talked to him before. But- Doesn't he calculate backwards from max heart rate? Something
3: well, about age, right? Yeah, well, Phil has a very complicated way that he, he figures out formulas. Phil, in his in, to his credit, came up with his own way of doing a formula. He didn't take 220 minus your age. What Phil did is he came up with a number of 180 beats per minute, and then he takes that 180 beats per minute, and he calculates in the person's physiological conditioning at that point, and that becomes part of the equation. And then from there, he figures out what heart rate zones are. Is it 100% accurate? No, it's not 100% accurate because, again, there's that, tell me what your physiological conditioning is, which everyone lies about. I think Phil's formulas can be very accurate for the elite athlete because the elite athlete is going to give it to him straight. But even so, my guess is if Phil's still coaching any elite athletes, which I don't think he is, he's giving them actual physical tests. There's no more accurate way to to calculate your zones and buy a physical assessment. Even Phil zones, if I were to use Phil zones, my training numbers would be about 10 beats per minute off in my zone too. So good for some, not good for all, better than as far as formulas go, better than most. If you're not going to take the time to take a test, taking a test is the best way and the most accurate way to come up with your numbers. I just had a guy in here the other day who I did a lactate threshold test for and was using mass numbers. And when he started warming up, we immediately found out that his numbers were way, way off. When we got done with his test, his zone two training numbers were actually started about 11 beats per minute higher than what they were before. Higher? Higher. Mm. So he was nowhere near. For whatever reason, but did he do the calculations wrong? Did he perceive himself to be differently as, as an athlete? There's a lot of things uh, that can play into that, but I'm not a formula guy for those reasons.
2: Yeah, and 10 beats is a lot, right? Because if I look at 10 oh. beats, that would take you from, for example, a 122 to a 132 beats per minute, which for me would be low zone 2 to mid zone 3
3: almost. It's an extreme difference, 10 beats per minute. Most heart rate training zones in zone 1, zone 2, and zone 3 are, are low end to high end 10 beats a minute. Right, So 10 beats a minute can completely change a training zone. It's a lot.
2: Yeah, and then you don't get the benefit of it. Yeah. Is there a way you can do a heart rate test on yourself?
3: Sure, sure. I mean, I have athletes do it all the time. And as long as they do it correctly, the numbers come out very, very accurately. I would say never do it alone. It's a stress test. And any time you do a stress test, you should have someone either in the room present with you while you're on the treadmill or at the track, if you're doing it at the track. But, yeah, certainly you can do it by yourself.
2: Yeah. I remember when I did it at the track, I actually didn't have a heart monitor. So I just took my pulse before and after, like at the peak, like got a max heart rate at the peak.
3: Yeah. Well, not the way to get the most accurate numbers.
2: <laughs> no, but that's okay. But, yeah. I, I've been that's doing it long enough now that I got plenty of data. Um, does yeah. it change over time?
3: For the novice athlete, when they start heart rate training and they retest their zones every six or eight weeks, you're going to see moderate changes in the lactate threshold, not a lot, but those moderate changes in the lactate threshold, two or three beats a minute at lactate threshold, will affect down the line through zone three, zone two, zone one. So they're going to see some changes. The more conditioned athlete and the more experienced athlete is going to see very, very little change in their actual training zones, but you still should be testing periodically. And when we're testing periodically, and then we're looking for a functional threshold pace, which is actually, so if you're running it, when, you, when I calculate your functioning threshold pace, we can look at that number, calculate it down to the correlating training zones, and then you know if you're really having a, that perfectly coordinated training day or your heart rate's elevated for some reason and you can't get the pace that you would normally train at, it just starts to become more data that you can use to get your training even more precise and dialed in.
2: Yeah, if somebody's not fit, though, to start, it's probably going to change over the course of that training. You know, when they get six months in, their aerobic thresholds are all going to move a little bit, right?
3: Yeah, but not significantly. I mean, they're going to move. The lactate threshold number, things that that they'll notice right away is they're able to sustain that 30-minute effort. They'll be able to push a little bit harder through it, so it might go up a beat or two a minute, which, again, affects zones down at the lower end a little bit but they find out that they're able to sustain that lactate threshold effort for longer periods of time and the more fit you become even though like if you take a guy who's been doing this for three four five years and has really everything dialed in he gets to that point where you go out and do a lactate threshold tester you just find out that he can sustain a zone four effort a lot longer than the novice person can And that works great for 5k's 10k's and half marathons, if you can push that zone four effort for an hour, an hour and 10 minutes, an hour and 15 minutes or more, you can really sustain a hard race for a long period of time. Can you do it for a marathon? No. But you build up that ability to sustain that hard effort for a longer period of time.
2: Yeah. Before we had all these devices and everything, we used to race. And that's what you would do sort of by feel. You'd go right to the edge and then back off just a little bit, right? And hold it right on that edge of you're going as fast as you can go, but not so fast that you're going to fail, right? And you yeah. adjust that for the distance that you are running.
3: And, it, and, you know, I always say that this aerobic-based training really started to get dialed in in the 60s with Arthur Lidyard. He was the guy who really focused on training his athletes that way. And it was all field-based system. You know, the biofeedback system that you listened to was your body telling you what you did. Lorraine Bowler, who's a four-time Olympic marathon and a Boston marathon winner is a friend of mine. And she tells a story how at Barcelona, when she won her bronze medal, she wore her Seiko watch that her dad gave her for graduation. It was different then. We understood what was going on with our bodies. And I I actually think that's very, very important even today, rather than to solely rely on the technology. Because, you know, what happens if the watch breaks in the middle of a race you really need to understand what's going on with your body. That's why I like to send people out on runs and say, I want you to go out and run at a medium effort, and then let's look at the data afterwards. So we can start to say, okay, well, you know, you're really tuned in to what's going on or, okay, this is what you thought you felt like, and this is what you actually were, were feeling like. So it's very, very important to understand what's going on with the body.
2: Right. And you get to the point where you can feel those changes in your body when you're running or you're racing, right?
3: Oh, sure. Absolutely.
2: And it gives you a chance you're able to recover mid-race or push mid-race. In a real racing environment, again, when we were growing up, you'd try to catch somebody or pass somebody. There's events within the race where you'd either accelerate or decelerate or push the effort or not and have to be able to recover from that, right?
3: Yeah, I still race like that. I don't look in my watch at all during a race. Yeah, I totally race by how I feel, and I'll rely on race split clocks rather than look like that's how old time I am. When I go through mile one, I want to see what the clock says there at mile one rather than look at my watch and see what it says because I just want to run by feel and, and make my adjustments as I go because a couple of old guys like us, that's the way we always did it. And to me, it's still the way that's most comfortable is running by how I feel.
2: Yeah, and the watches don't line up with the race splits. Typically, they're off, so... <laughs>
3: Oh, just think about Portland Marathon. How We kept saying, what do you mean? My watch said six miles, and then eight-tenths of a mile later, their sign said six miles. So.
2: Right, yeah, they were off by a half a mile. Yeah. No, but even on a well-marked course, yeah. there's it's typically, for me, it's typically going to be off by, I don't know, 100 feet or so, which could be five seconds.
3: Yeah, and over 26 miles, that's a lot when it's continually off 100 feet or so, and that's just GPS satellite connecting. So
2: when we're doing our heart rate training, right? And your heart rate doesn't change over time really. The zone stays the same. What changes is your pace, right? Right. So your, your right. pace and it, adapts, and and your aerobic fitness adapts over the course of that training cycle.
3: Correct. What what happens when you start out and you start running in zone two? And let's arbitrarily 154 beats a minute is your zone two. And you say go out. Let's go out and run for an hour at 154 beats a minute or in that range. And in that hour, you cover six miles, six or eight weeks down the road if the training is working the way it should be working. In that same hour, you should be covering anywhere. Well, I don't know the distance. It depends on how much the person improves. But you could cover as much as seven or eight miles depending on your level of improvement. Because now as you become stronger cardiovascularly, your legs have to turn over faster. There has to be more physical effort to get the heartbeat up to that same 154 beats a minute.
2: Right. And it'll tend to plateau. It's sort of an S-curve, right? So you make really, it's slow in the beginning, then you make rapid gains, and then it tends to plateau a little bit towards the end of the cycle.
3: Yeah. yeah, And again, that depends on the conditioning of the person coming in. It's with novice people, they continue to see improvements with cardiovascular training. They might, they're going to see a lot of improvements probably for four, five, six, seven cycles of training as they develop right. cardiovascular strength. For a guy like you who's been running, who's been doing this now for five, six, seven years, you're at that point where during the course of a cycle, you're going to plateau a little bit. And, and that's only natural. You can increase your endurance base up to about 10 years before you finally get to that point where, okay, this is pretty much my endurance base and that's what it's going to be. And so for the novice person, they can continue to to increase their cardiovascular fitness for a number of years.
2: All right. So we got our average marathoner now looking at a spring marathon. What kind of training plan would you put together for them? Typically you do, let's say that's what, a four-month cycle or a six-month cycle, whatever it is. What are the phases, and how do you get somebody to peak on race day in the spring?
3: Okay, why? It's, I use a standard periodization pyramid, and depending, on, again, on individual, if they're you said the average person. So let's say the average person is someone who's done a marathon or two. I will take them through a base one period, which can be anywhere from six to ten weeks of just base work where they're really developing their cardiovascular fitness. Probably 90 to 95% of their runs are just going to be aerobic-based runs. On recovery weeks, I'll have them do a little bit of Zone 3 stuff just to start tuning up the fast twitch fibers a little bit. Then I move them into what I call my Base 2 phase, where they start doing the aerobic-based runs in Zone 2 with some Zone 3 surges. Again, we're starting to teach the body how to to enact the fast twitch fibers getting the turnover done a little bit more, stressing the body a little bit more and teaching them how to start looking at what race pace feels like in shorter bursts. From there, I'll take them into a hill and strength cycle, which will be moderate hills and moderate strength runs. And I call them strength runs. A lot of people call them tempo or interval runs, but I like to use moderate hills. And when I say moderate hills, that means I don't want people pounding up hills right out of those two base cycles, going up in hills in zone four and corrupting their form and, you're looking at injury right in the eye that way. I do moderate hill repeats where they go up a hill, get into zone three. It's really form-focused. It's on lifting the legs, you know, making sure the foot plant is good, getting up the hills, recovering back down. The interval work I'll have them do during that or fart licks in zone three. Again, we're focusing on sustaining a little bit of that aerobic threshold effort, which is different than lactate threshold. So they start to get ready to get into the really intense stuff that will come after that phase, and then that next phase where we start the the hard interval work, and uh, where we're pushing intervals of six to eight minutes at a time with short recovery periods. The hill repeats become a little bit harder; they get to be one or two minutes long as they're going through this cycle. They'll progress that way, and when they're working zone four hills now, because now they know how to run up a hill properly. And so the added effort there shows itself off later on because we all know that hills are speed work in disguise. And and then, of course, I'll take them into the speed phase of the training. I don't like to use the track for a lot of people. I will use the track for some people, but I don't like to use it for a lot of people because a lot of people don't know how to run on a track. And they start to overstride and get out of a, a solid form and hamstrings start to go and quad injuries start to happen just because they'll overstride when they get on the track. They'll be pushing off their toes too much. I'd rather have people do speed work out on the roads, so at least they're going to maintain their form, and they can still do 200s and 400s or 800s out on the road without making too many adjustments to their running form, and I just think it's more applicable to what happens on race day. And then, of course, there's taper, and bring them through taper, two or three weeks of taper, again, depending on the person, till they peak on race day.
2: So when I first started training with you, you gave me a lot of these long-tempo step-up runs, like 12-mile, 10-mile step-up runs, which is a really hard workout.
3: Yeah. It's the reason why Kenyans drop American runners. The progressive run or the step-up run, as I call them, have been the crux of Kenyan training for years. They go out and they do all their base work, and we all know the history of their work ethic is crazy, 220-mile weeks. And they do a lot of aerobic base work. People don't realize that most Kenyans train anywhere from two to two and a half minutes slower than their race pace when they're in their base phase of training. Um, And when they come out of their base phase of training and they start getting more to race specificity stuff, that's what they do. They go out and they'll run eight, ten miles nice and easy. And then they'll run eight, ten miles at their aerobic threshold, which is just faster than marathon race pace. And then they'll really push way above marathon race pace, you know, up into that zone four area to finish off the run. And that's what gives them that incredible finishing strength that they have. And that's why I like the step-up run, because a step-up run really teaches your body how to carry those finishing efforts. So if you want to, you can run the negative split.
2: Yeah, and it really teaches you what you need to have in a race. So it teaches your body to respond when you're tired and to close hard as opposed to what most people do in races, which is hit the wall and, and crash late, right?
3: Yeah. Race specificity training is so important in a training cycle. And there's a lot of their heart rate-based coaches out there who, in my opinion, they don't get into race specificity training enough with their athletes. So when they're athlete, I have, in fact, someone just contacted me today and said, can you review my training schedule that my last coach had me done? Because so I think I was really underprepared for my race. And as I'm going through it, I saw there was that lack of aerobic threshold training and harder training um, to condition her body to carry the pace that she wanted to carry at the end of the race. And I think a lot of coaches miss that. They just think about base, 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 and then surge stuff because they get confused. They don't understand that the body at 26.2 miles has to be conditioned to to finish.
0: Yeah, I
2: see that a lot with the plans online is they're all about miles or times, and there's no race-specific training. Or there's too much of it.
3: Yeah, too much too soon. One of my theories is, is my big thing is too much, too hard, too soon. And A lot of people make that mistake. You know, what are you doing at the track 16 weeks out from your race? It makes absolutely no sense. One, your body isn't ready to handle it. And two, you know, 16 weeks of track work and interval work is just going to beat you up to the point where you're going to fail on race day anyway.
2: we got to get Teresa to do a marathon. So how do we get her to train up for a marathon.
3: I don't know. You took Teresa up to do a Spartan, and she kicked your butt at the Spartan race. Um, so <laughs> Teresa's an overachiever to begin with. I mean, the girl comes out of college, and you know, people are banging down the doors to create jobs for her. And she, I mean, you would think she'd want to do a marathon, just another little achievement in her, under her belt. I think we would say, Teresa, heck, you know what, Teresa, forget the marathon. Let's just go run a 100-miler.
2: Yeah, let's do an ultra. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
3: hey. That's fast. How
2: fast? So well, when you get into ultra, <laughs> yeah. fast doesn't matter.
3: <laughs> fast doesn't matter at 100 miles. Just getting to the finish line. To, no, but Teresa's a good yeah, athlete. Yeah.
2: Yeah. She wants to do the uh, the Spartan Beast, so. Ah. Yeah. Uh,
3: I'm actually training right now. Not one of my very first, but a guy I used to train back in 2003. We just came back on board, and he's training for one of the California Spartans. And I guess they call all the, all the half marathon ones a beast? Or is that yeah. just the one in Vermont?
2: Yeah, so it's somewhere between 13 and 15 miles. They don't really care much about mileage, and they call that a beast. But the person who wins it does it in three hours and 40 minutes, something like that, three hours. Yeah. And I came in at six and a half hours, and that was better than over 90% of the people who finished
3: I think a lot of people take those Spartan races for granted and they don't do the upper body and, and especially the hand strength. When I look at Spartan courses, there is really a lot of uh, lower arm and hand strength involved with the obstacles that you go over. And if you don't have that lower arm and hand strength, I would imagine the climbers do really well at Spartan races.
2: Yeah. If you have the grip, it'd be really important.
3: Yeah. But I'm training the guy now for one and we'll see how he does. He was one of my better athletes back in the day when he was younger. So we'll see how he does out in California.
2: Yeah, you can either train for the grip or train for the burpees.
3: Yeah, well, he's a, so, he's also a Crossfitter now, too, so I, I don't hold that against him. But
2: Yeah, you know those Crossfitters. Yeah. All right, yeah. so we've wrapped up our heart rate training here. Hopefully, I'll be over my head cold in time to hit the training for Boston. I just got my entry into Boston.
3: That's great. What kind of entry did you get?
2: I got a waiver.
3: You got a waiver? Fantastic. I got an
2: invitational um, entry.
3: And we're already in for next year, so.
2: I'm in for next year. I'll yes. get 20, and then I'll see if I want to do it anymore. But that's what I said at 10.
3: Yeah. Get over the cold so we can get at it.
2: All right, man. Thanks for the help. So if people want to, oh. uh, if they want to get a heart rate test or ask you some questions, where do they reach you?
3: They can always shoot me an email, prsfit at gmail.com. And uh, shoot me, ask me any questions. I can set up a heart rate test for them if they like. It's a nominal fee. It's probably worth it if you want to start getting into a rope training, so.
2: All right, man. Enjoy your day.
3: Okay, thanks. Pleasure. Teresa, take care. It's time to run a marathon, kiddo. All right, I'll work on it. Thanks,
1: Coach. Bye. 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 Sometimes it takes a third party to tell us what we already know. Six reasons to live your life the way you want. Work-life balance. Hey, so everyone has different priorities in their lives. Some people are really into their kids and their family. Some are deep in their faith. Some are perhaps into something less mainstream like cosplay or endurance sports. One of the challenges that has emerged over time is how to balance these life priorities with your work. Now, in the pre-industrial revolution days on the farm, seasons and cycles dictated the work. You could philosophize as much as you wanted, but someone had to get up and milk the cows. Someone had to get the hay raked before it rained. Someone had to cut enough firewood to survive the winter. These activities weren't so much work, they were life. And into those seasons of work life, the pastoral wove his or her family and faith. And it had a nice rhythm to it, but typically it was brutish and short. As we humans rolled into the industrial era... The work was, again, very well defined. You stood at your station and shined widgets for the assembly of widget mobiles eight to twelve hours a day. A guy with a tie and a stopwatch stood behind you and tried to figure out how you could shine two percent more widgets per hour, and your time was clearly partitioned into work time and non-work time. In the non-work time, you could go have a picnic, go to church, get warm at the public house, or work on your next novel. It was a simple setup. There was no conflict or balancing of work and life. The guy with the stopwatch doesn't care how efficiently you use your church or pub time. He is only concerned with the time between punch-in and punch-out. Now, after World War II, when Drucker was talking about the knowledge worker, things started to get a bit stickier. The elements of work and life started to blur for the company man. And this is where the zero-sum thinking starts. This is where we start to see white-collar workers letting work crowd out everything else in their lives. And we all know these people. It's the 80-hour-a-week lawyer, the come-in-first-leave-last manager who glances at her watch when you walk by the door, and the Saturday morning staff meeting executive like Sam Walton. Is there a correlation between the hours worked and the output? Sure, there is but it's nonlinear linear and it suffers greatly from diminishing returns. Is it evil or morally wrong to work 80 hours a week at your profession? Of course not. For some people, that aligns perfectly with their vision of themselves and their core values. But not everyone. I would say most of us would be better off figuring out how to be more effective in our roles as opposed to how to work more hours at them. I've rambled too long with this preamble. Maybe I should have called it a (laughs) pre-ramble. Here's the current situation challenging many of us in the modern workforce. You want to find a way to balance or integrate your work with your other life priorities. And is that possible? And the only way you can have a chance of finding balance or integration with your life and your work is to have some idea about what is important to you. And this may take some introspection on your part, which I don't have the space or time to talk you through today. Let's say you place a certain priority on your health, or on your family, or on your faith. Whatever your core values are, these are the things you now must integrate as best you can. If you don't know what's important to you, then you really can't blame work and career for filling up that void. So here are six reasons to structure your work-life integrations as you see fit. Number one, nobody cares. In fact, they will be impressed. When your boss is scheduling Saturday meetings or showing up at the office at 5 a.m., or my personal favorite, wanting to have a long conversation about sales pipeline, account by account every Friday at 5 p.m., is it really possible for you to go against the grain and the company culture and do something different? As it turns out, yes, it is not only possible, but if you do it right, it will set you apart. You don't even need to ask for permission most of the time. Just leave the office and go for that hour and a half run. No one's going to care. The key is to do this normatively different thing with positive confidence. Assume the power and conviction. Don't slink around or act apologetic. Don't make a big show of it. Just do it like it is the right and simple thing to do, because it is the right thing to do for you. And you'll be surprised how little anyone cares, especially if you've spent all this time blowing it up into a big deal inside your own head. Number two, if they do care, you might be in the wrong place. What if someone does put up a stink? What if they do care? What if the boss rolls their eyes or starts a passive-aggressive campaign? Well, I think you may have your answer then, right? First, you have precipitated a conversation about what is important. You get to ask the question of what outcomes are we trying to attain here? Why are we really all wrapped up in measuring activity? If I can give you the same or a better outcome another way, and if the answer is because we said so, then the activity is not about outcomes. It is about some weird power dynamic, and you need to find a better gig or negotiate a better deal. Either way, you get your answers, and you do what is right based on what is important to you. If there's a mismatch, then you're better off knowing about it than suffering in silence. Number three, you are leading through your actions. Another funny thing that happens when you start making up your own norms around work-life integration The other lemmings lift their heads up and stare at you in amazement. You become a leader. You have just given permission to others to adjust their work-life integration rules. You have led by example. You have made positive change in the world. Number four, working harder is typically zero-sum thinking. When you really scrutinize work cultures that champion hours spent, what you will find is zero-sum thinking. The theory is that you only have so much time. So, therefore, you need to allocate as much as possible to your work or you won't be successful. That's not only zero sum thinking, it's also scarcity thinking. When you start trying to better align your work life with your core values, you will have to flip that scarcity thinking over and create an abundance mindset where you see time as abundance and then integration is a different calculus. The hallmark of company cultures that are set in a scarcity mindset is secrecy. I can't share any information with you or with the customers, or you might use it against me. So if you find you are in a company with a scarcity culture, you probably want to get out of there. Number five, it's not about working less. It's about aligning the work. I am not saying that you need to find a way to work less. In fact, once you align your work with your core values and integrate it into your life, you may work more. There will be an urgency of purpose because you own the work, and that allows you to be very effective. An abundance culture doesn't mean everything is smooth sailing. There will be failures and setbacks and leaning in that require grit and intensity, But because it is all part of an integrated work-life bundle, it will be okay. And this is not about working less or even work-life balance. It's about integrating your life around what is important to you and spending every ounce of energy you have on that package. And number six, create authenticity, not work-life balance. This whole work-life balance topic can be... A lot of overblown hooey. The single mother working double fast food shifts and a janitorial job at night doesn't have the luxury to think about it. How do you make it authentic for you? The core or essence of this whole exercise comes back around to what is important to you. If you can do nothing else but figure out that, then you will have a measuring stick to start gauging how to allocate your hours, your efforts, and your passions. If you know your core values, then you can act authentically in all your life works. So let's bring it all together. If we get beyond the philosophy of work, this discussion comes down to a few key points, and that's why you care. Here's why you care. First, there's no such thing as work life balance per se. How you spend your time is an outgrowth of what you believe, and it may take you a lifetime to learn this. Second, it's not about working less. It's about finding the right things for you to throw yourself into. And third, it all comes back to understanding your core values and measuring your balance or integration against those. Okay, now we're going to move you towards the exit, please. Hey folks, Merry Saturnalia, as I said in the opening, and Merry Solstice to you. Congratulations on having your heart continue beating through the course and to the end of episode 4-355 of the Run Run Live podcast. No races to report this week, just six extra pounds of Christmas cookie blubber, (laughs) and an amoxicillin chaser. I do have the Groton Marathon coming up, as usually happens. People tend to bail as we get closer, and what seems like a swell idea in October becomes a dumb idea in December. And with my week off, I'm in no shape to run it, but as the host, I'm going to have to trundle my cookie-eating butt out there and make a show of it. Teresa wants to run the Hangover Classic, which, due to the way the holidays fall this year, is the very next day. And I guess a guy of my experience can go limp and easy 5K with an ocean dip. The water is warm this year. It's in the mid-40s, and that will cure any and all aches and pains and hangovers. But I think Coach is going to be pretty angry with me for these poor decisions. <laughs> I, I called him last night, and I said, Coach, you know, do you think I should run tonight? You know, I got this penicillin or this amoxicillin in me, and you know, do you think think I should run? It's pretty cold out. And he said, you know, Chris, I've known you for six years, and you've never called me to ask me if you should go out running. What do you think? <laughs> so I just went out and did a little five K of the neighborhood just to keep the crazies off. As we kick off the new year, as we turn the calendar over, it's a new season. I'm gonna focus on getting back in shape. Kind of shape I was in for Portland. With that fitness and actually training for the target race, I should be able to go deep, maybe down into the three twenties. And I'd really like to do that as a vindication for these last five years of struggle before I age up and stop worrying about it. Yeah, 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 I know. As much as I like to act like I don't care, I guess I do. And as much as I like to pretend I'm not compulsive in my need for bookend events, yeah, I am. And I guess we're all compulsive in our own way, right? I'll keep it brief. I know you have things to do. I hope you're listening to this while you're out in the winter trails at night under a waning moon, the snow crunching and squeaking under your yak tracks, the breath blooming large like a flower of life from your lungs, a chrysanthemum of joyous exertion. I'd like that. I've been figuring it out myself, how to get out into the dark and the cold and the snow. We've got enough snow, and it stayed to narrow the roads and make the trails dicey. And people in cars, they're super angry this time of year (laughs) and we only get like four hours of sunlight or something now so yeah it's challenging to get out there right but we must get out there out there is that other existence out there is where life is so get out there lean in or maybe out (laughs) make somebody's day enjoy your holidays be grateful hug your family Cuddle your dog, relax, be in the moment, and thank you for 2016. And I'll see you out there in 2017.
0: And then he thought that he just couldn't die. So Ned, he laughed so hard it made him cry.
1: Okay, what do we got here? We got a little chai tea. Ah, Turn the recording light on in the studio. (laughs) Uh, What else we got? Printer's not printing. Nope, everything's good. My hard disk is spinning a little bit. You hear that? The dog's sleeping. The kids are locked in their rooms. The, uh, The presents are nestled under the tree. Uh, ah, ba, 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 Let's go. Let's record. It's time. Record, record, record. All right. <clears throat> All right. More tea. It's a bit of a chai. Look like a petal. I just
0: opened in his pack. His eyes how they twinkled. His dimples how merry. His cheeks were like roses. His nose like a cherry. His droll little mouth was drawn up like a bow, and the beard of his chin was as white as the snow. The stuff of his pipe he held tight in his teeth, and the smoke in it circled his head like a wreath. He had a broad face and a little round belly that shook when he laughed like a bowl full of jelly. He was chubby and plumper, right jelly-o out. And I laughed when I saw him in spite of myself, a wink of his eye and a twist of his head soon gave me to know that I had nothing to dread. He spoke not a word, but went straight to his work, and filled all the stockings, then turned with a jerk, and laying his finger aside of his nose, he gave a nod up the chimney he rose. He sprang to his sleigh to his team, he gave a whistle, and away wave flew like the down of a thistle. But I heard him exclaim as he drove out of sight, Merry Christmas to all, and to all a good night. Yeah!